1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy, and I work in the editorial team here at the IAI.
0: And my name's Charlie, and I'm senior producer here at the IAI.
1: And today we've got for you the good, the bad, and the ignored, featuring legendary moral philosopher Peter Singer, eminent philosopher Julian Baggini, and intellectual historian and philosopher Sophie Scott Brown. And this took place in 2022 at How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the I.I. So, Charlie, tell us a bit more about today's debate.
0: Yeah, so this debate explores agency and morality and it considers if some types of inaction and moral apathy are sometimes the same, if not worse, than the worst kinds of moral action interesting. Is there anything specific you enjoyed about this debate? I think the best thing about this debate is Peter Singer, who is the founder of this kind of effective altruism philosophy, and he wrote a very famous paper called Famine Affluence, Morality, defends his view that there are some kinds of inaction that are the same. So like not giving to charity, if not worse than murdering people. And he faces some quite fierce criticism from Julian Bergini who argues that no, actually there are different spheres of responsibility when it comes to your own family and your own friends and your closer circle of people and from someone on the other side of the world. And that Peter Singer's philosophy doesn't take into account human nature enough. So there's a really fascinating clash between those two.
1: Interesting. Well, I think we've got lots to look forward to. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
0: Now, let's hand over to our host for this debate, Robert Rowland-Smith.
2: <clears throat> well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this uh, panel, The Good, The Bad and The Ignored. And uh, we'll be looking broadly at questions of human action and inaction in this in this debate. And uh, following a format that you've probably become familiar with if you've been to our other sessions at the festival so far. So I'll do a brief introduction. I'll ask each of the three speakers to sort of set out their stall, as it were, on this uh, theme. And then we'll dive into some particular questions. So um, a bit of an introduction then. I mean, you know, we may not always agree on questions of morality, Uh, but whatever standards we adopt, we apply them to human action. We are less inclined to take a moral stance on human inaction and failure to act. We see, for example, initiating conflict as different in kind to ignoring conflict. Many, for example, would argue that Putin's attack on the Ukrainian people is morally evil but there's less outrage that we fail to save any of the estimated 5.4 million children under five who died last year from preventable causes. So is our emphasis on human agency a mistake? If we applied morality equally to inaction, would it help to mark a shift to a more caring and socially responsible society? Or is the application of morality to inaction an impossible burden for us to carry, and one that risks undermining morality as a whole, as we all become culpable all of the time. So that's the, um, that's the outline of what we're gonna be discussing today. And uh, I'm delighted to be joined by three speakers, or joined virtually in one case. Uh, Peter Singer, welcome, Peter. Thank you. Uh, uh, Peter's, I think, undoubtedly, one of the world's most foremost uh, public philosophers, and prominent figure in contemporary ethics, he is currently the Ira D. DeCamp Professor of Bi- uh, Bioethics at Princeton. Um, so we're very well pleased to have you here over Zoom, um, and we hope the hope the connection remains stable. Um, Julian, hope you remain stable too. <laughs> uh, Julian is a philosopher, writer, journalist, and I didn't know this actually until I read your bio. Uh, also a part-time YouTube cook extraordinaire. <laughs> so, if the conversation flags a bit, we can move on to recipes. Um, he's the author of uh, numerous best selling books on philosophy and co founder of the Philosopher's Magazine. And uh, I think you've got a book coming out next year on how to think like a philosopher. So, we might make a little preview of that uh, this afternoon. And last but not least, on my right, your left, Scof- uh, Sophie Scott Brown's a lecturer in philosophy, one of the leading thinkers on the topics of intellectual history, uh, social movements of democracy and anarchism. I hope you'll stick to the rules at least for this panel. So, we know what the kind of broad outline of the debate is. As I say, I'm going to ask each of our three panelists just to give us a sort of opening salvo on this subject, human action versus inaction. So, maybe I can come to you first, Peter. If you can just uh, there you are over in I assume you're in Princeton. Give us uh, your, your opening thoughts if you like on this subject matter before we dive in to the questions per se
3: thanks very much Uh, well i've thought about this issue for a long time and in fact uh one of the sort of signature pieces that i wrote back in the 1970s included an example that was intended to illustrate that sometimes inaction is at least as bad as um, action Uh, and that example was uh it's known as the drowning child in in the shallow pond um i asked my readers to imagine that they're walking through a park. There's a pond in the park, which they know is quite shallow. Um, But uh, they notice that there's a small child who's fallen into the pond and this child appears to be in danger of drowning. Although you you could easily stand up in the pond. The child is too small to do that. Of course, you would look around for the parents or babysitter or somebody's got to be looking after this child, you would say. But no, there's there's nobody there except you and the child in the park. So what are you going to do? Your first thought should be that you will run down, jump into the pond and save the child. Your second less noble thought is that, unfortunately, you're wearing really expensive clothes that you've put on for a very special occasion where you're going um, and they're going to get ruined if you jump into a muddy pond. Now, suppose that you say to yourself, well, I didn't push the child into the pond, um, and in no way am I responsible for this child. Nobody asked me to look after the child. So um, I don't want to ruin my clothes, and I'll just walk on by. Probably the child will drown, but at least I won't need to replace my expensive clothes. Now, when I ask audiences what they think about that, they say, that's awful. How could you do that? How could you leave a child to drown? How could you put your clothing ahead of a child's life? And I agree with that, of course. And my point is that, as you mentioned, we are not doing very much. We're doing something, but not enough to save the more than 5 million children who are dying before their fifth birthday from preventable poverty-related causes. So I do think that you know the point of my illustration is to show that this is also wrong. Um, it's not exactly, It's no analogies are perfect, but um, in a similar way, though we're not responsible we're Arguably, we're not responsible. You could debate that. But even if we're not responsible for the, the plight and poverty of, uh, that is causing those five million deaths, it's wrong of us not to do something to reduce that death toll. Okay. So that's, that's my case for saying that. Uh,
2: okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. Um, midway through that, when you were talking about people rescuing their clothes rather than saving the child. I was going to do an audience poll, but I wondered who'd have the nerve to say they'd preserve their clothing rather than the child. Uh, Maybe we'll come up to that later. Okay, thank you. So um, clearly a sense there in which inaction ought to be brought within the compass of moral responsibility in some some form. So thanks for that, Peter. Following the same order as we started, I'll I'll come to you next, Julian, if you don't mind. Just give us your opening thoughts on this, and I'll come to you, Sophie, and then we'll... Start getting into more of the meat of the debate.
4: Well, thanks. So I'll pick up from on where Peter left it. Really, Peter said that some, sometimes inaction is as morally culpable as as, in, as action. I think that's true, but I think that sometimes is important because you know what is the the moral of the story about walking past the the child in the pond? And I think that what's striking about that is that one is finds oneself in a situation where one is uniquely able to do something, and one is there. And I think a lot of our moral responsibilities are the result of these accidental contingent features. We find ourselves in some situations and not in others. So for example, you know, if you have elderly parents who need looking after, you didn't choose to have them, you know, you were just thrown into the world of them. And even if you have a difficult relationship with your parents, you're, you're some, sometimes the only person who is in that position to fulfill that responsibility. And I think that the inaction-action thing is in a sense a bit of a red herring. I don't think people have a problem with the idea that inaction is... I don't think it's counterintuitive to say you could be ir- morally responsible for inaction. A parent who refuses to feed and clothe their children is, is morally culpable for not doing something that they ought to do. So establishing the fact that inaction could be morally wrong isn't the problem. I think the key question is, is what kind of duties do we have? When is our in action, a, a, a breach of duty, and in the walking past the pond case, it clearly is. And when isn't it? And it's not a black and white thing. It's not, a, it's not a either or. We have different degrees of responsibility. So I think Peter's work has been really, really important and valuable in getting us to think about the fact that we can't pretend we have no duty or no responsibility at all for those people who are dying, other parts of the world where we could do something about it. But the idea that that kind of duty and responsibility is exactly the same as it is to pull out a child of a pond you're passing, I don't think that follows at all. So I, I'd want to sort of focus on the question of, you know, for what thing, what do we have duties and responsibilities towards concerning our inactions, and that they're not always, I think, of the same degree and seriousness.
2: Yeah. Okay, thank you, Julian. That's very helpful. So maybe there's another distinction to, to throw into the mix here, as well as um action and inaction. What well, certainly what I hear it a bit in what you're saying there, Julian, is there's an element of which we can be conscious or not conscious of the of the choices we might be making when we when we intervene. Things we might unconsciously just let happen rather than making things happen. So thank you for that. Um how do you follow with that? Uh, oh goodness, century? how do you yeah. follow that?
1: Um, well, firstly, I'm just going to pick up on on um, Peter's anecdote and say, well, and, and your idea of doing a poll, and, and say, well, actually, I think actually most people in this room are going to have to say that at some point they have picked their clothes over the, the small child's wellbeing, because obviously how many of us uh, are wearing clothes that are produced by manufacturers that use things like child labour? And, you know, where does that sit in this kind of mixture in this and this conversation? and that is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we know, but we don't know, don't we? So we all know that this is the case, but do we know in terms of ourselves? And that leads me to sort of connect with um, Julian's point slightly more, that sort of, and and the idea of consciousness and, and the knowing on a broad general scale, yes, we know certain clothing manufacturers use child labor, but that knowing in the sense that this is me in this situation, what am I going to do? What are my responsibilities? What are my duties? And I suppose I'm also interested, that I'm going to bring a sort of political element into this. Um, I'm interested in that experience and the conditions of that feeling of, of you know, sort of um, knowing and choosing action or inaction, because of course, the dichotomy is a bit skatey, a bit slippery, because sometimes inaction is a form of, it's a form, it is a moral choice, isn't it? And that might sound counterintuitive, but I'll give you an example. I work a lot on um, post-war radical cultures. And the 1950s, for example, was famously called the age of apathy, where nobody wanted to do politics, despite the fact this was the nuclear age, it was the Cold War, you know, it was the sort of seeds of the peace movement, stuff like that. But it's known as the age of apathy. And Raymond Williams, who was a um, sort of very prominent uh, intellectual in Britain at the time, sort of remarked, well, hang on a minute, are we looking at apathy wrong? Um, Are we looking at it, you know, just from this, purely in this negative sense? What about its positive connotations? And he actually said something along the lines of, you know, sometimes sullenness is a form of resistance. It's because the sort of actions that we're being told, you should do this, you should be acting like this, you should be doing that, don't fit with how we feel, understand, um, or, or want to be in the world. So I'm also wondering about that sense of who gets to choose the actions and whether that emotional connection related to that choice is really what's going to drive us to do them in the end.
2: Mm, interesting. Interesting notion there of positive apathy as positive well. Positive apathy. Yeah, very interesting. Um, we'll go into the debate in a second. I'm also reminded a little bit of that first line of the Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm. And actually, you know where where the limit on that is, because there's a kind of conscious doing no harm, but there's all those invisible harms we may we may be perpetrating without quite realizing. Uh, okay, well, thanks to all three of you. So the structure of this debate now is is to take three different questions and to delve a little uh, deeper into each of the subjects. The first one, as as it's sort of uh, prescribed here, um, is as follows: Is our emphasis on human agency over inaction? a fantasy to justify our moral negligence. In other words, do we keep banging on about action? You know, because dealing with the inaction is uh, is tricky and uh, we get off the hook more easily if we just focus on, on action. So uh, we can go in a, any order now. We'll try and make this, or at least I'll try and make it more of a conversation than a kind of series of just talking heads. But um, I don't know, Julian, do you want to maybe pick that up and and have a go at that
4: yeah well I, I don't i see i don't think the inaction action thing is is the key factor here i, yeah. I don't get back back onto this i mean i think we're used to, so for example what is the thing at the moment which perhaps most people are morally outraged about our failure to tackle climate change so the idea that inaction is morally reprehensible is absolutely center stage we're, we're very very familiar with that i think the, the the question about you know we like it is true that we like to get off the hook and sometimes it is true, sort of thinking, "Well, it's, I, I didn't do it, it's nothing to do with me, is uh, a way of doing that. But there are lots of other things as well. Lack of proximity is is a key one. So again, if we take Sophie's example here, you know, the, the, the child labor at uh, the, the end of the supply chain, well, yeah, I, I buy something, I'm part of a chain of action which has at the end of it, the, the child labor. When you buy cheap coffee, cheap chocolate, you are again, you are actively doing something, you are contributing to a supply chain, which is ends in sort of a misery for farmers and people like that. Um, so I, I just think that we're very familiar with the idea of, um, when, when we try to let ourselves off the hook, I don't think appealing to the fact that inaction involved is, is it's something we sometimes do, but... Any way we find to distance ourselves from the consequences of our action or inaction, we, we, will, we will often latch onto, and that's the bigger problem, rather than action inaction per se, I think.
2: Interesting, you said proximity, and you talked about supply chains. I wondered if you were going to make the argument you didn't make, which is it depends how long the supply chain is. You know, The longer it is, the more complex, the more we get off the hook. I'm sure you'd challenge that, though, <laughs>
1: What, in terms of the longer the supply chain, the more, the the greater the distance, the less moral responsibility. Yeah, sorry, no. I, um, I think um, it is. It's an interesting question. I actually, I actually read this sort of issue of is this, is this responding to a fantasy? I, I slightly differently, I thought you know maybe it was asking if it's a fantasy that we've really got human agency. Because if you take the supply chain, for example, well, actually we could start saying, well, do you know what we are? We are just mired in this sort of global everything we do our entire lives, you know, sort of every step we turn, we would have to be, you know, sort of Billy crazy out in the desert living in a kind of, you know, sort of teepee of our own fashioning to not participate in this world. So rather, and so then you might want to go on to the conversation role. How much agency do I really have? How much choice do I really have? And that's before you don't need to be a sort of fully fledged Marxist to say that it's all these great sort of social forces manipulating me making me do this, that and the other. But I wonder if there isn't a space between Billy crazy in the desert and full blown, everything's been determined for me. And this sort of notion of whether actually there's a lot of intellectual work that we could all be doing about the amounts of choices that we can we can be making. I mean, the the global supply chain is an issue. Um, there are certain things that it'd be very difficult to disentangle from our modern lives. But something like clothing, how is that? Is that difficult? Is it difficult to say, right, well, I'm going to buy predominantly secondhand clothes, you know, I'm gonna make a positive decision to do that. Or, you know, I suppose it is about coming back to having a look at what you do have to work with without saying that you've got full and complete agency to determine absolutely everything you do. So it's that sort of, I suppose I'd like to throw negotiated actions Mm -hmm. into this mixture.
2: Okay, thank you. And maybe we'll pick up on that. Actually, Peter, I wondered uh, about your thoughts, taken with your notion of the person living in the desert. And Peter, I mean, I'm sure in your work you've explored this theme, you know, Is that just a fantasy that there is somewhere we could go to be completely off-grid and completely non-culpable in any way of any sort of moral implication or negative moral implication of our actions?
3: You could probably do it if you tried hard enough, but I'm not sure that that's the best thing to do, because then you're not going to be presumably uh, earning as much as you would if you were part of this society, and therefore you're foregoing the opportunity to contribute to one of the highly effective charities who are helping people in extreme poverty. Um, and I think we do have agency. I mean, the supply chain issues are difficult. I agree. It's hard to find out whether your clothes did involve child labor or uh, the labor of Uyghurs in China, for example, something like that. It's, that requires quite a lot of investigation. But it's, you know, anybody who's middle class or above in a country like the United Kingdom or the United States or Australia um, has spare resources that they can contribute. To effective organizations. And thanks to the work of the effective altruism movement, you can now go online. Um, you can go to The Life You Can Save if you like, which is a, uh, a website an organization that I founded, or you can go to GiveWell or others. Um, and you can find independently assessed charities that have been uh, determined to be highly effective in taking your donation. And helping people in extreme poverty in a a variety of ways, Uh, maybe giving out bed nets so children don't die of malaria, maybe um, restoring sight in people who have cataracts and can't afford to get them removed, Uh, a whole lot of different things. So I think we we do have agency and I don't think we should go and live in the desert. I think we should do our best to contribute to change through our personal donations and, of course, through our political activity as well in, in democracies we can help to make a change that way. Well, I feel a bit like a presenter on
2: the Today Show trying to get a fierce argument going, and, and yet there's sort of quite broad agreement here that we, we, should, we should all sort of do our best here. So I'm going to try and provoke, uh, maybe I'll try and provoke you, Julian, and say, like, <laughs> surely we can't be such goody goodies all the time, can we?
4: Yeah, no, no, I mean, I think there is, the, I do have disagreement. Um, and I think the disagreement is this, is that I think the kind of approach that, Peter uh, advocates, which he's only sort of begun to sort of sketch out, so it's not something he's overtly said today, really takes as its premise the idea that when we're thinking about what our moral responsibilities are, we have a duty to kind of consider everybody's interests absolutely equally with no no favour at all. So the fact that someone is um, your neighbour, a member of your family and so forth, there may be pragmatic reasons why you would spend more time helping them than people the other side of the world, Namely, that you're there, you're available, so they're practical reasons. That's not a principle. In principle, our responsibilities are equally the same to everybody. And I, I, I don't think that that's sustainable. I think that it sort of has it has a view of human nature and society, which is um, I don't think it's, it not it's an accurate view of human nature and society. I think that the duties and responsibilities we have are often a result of historical, even geographical political accidents, and these, these, these responsibilities do not extend universally. Now, the point is, I, I could argue that point in a philosophical nitpicking way, and I'd probably, you know, Peter's a great man who'd probably destroy me, but um, in a way I wouldn't even want to, because I think you don't need to, because in practice, I think we tend to converge. In practice, someone like Peter doesn't, um, he would admit this himself, I think, doesn't follow his principles to their absolute logical conclusion. Ah. Peter does not live literally on the minimum that he could survive on um any less than which he'd become miserable um he is very very generous indeed he gives away a lot of money he won the one million pound begrun prize last year gave it all away so he, he does he, he's a mu- you know, much more altruistic person than i will ever be so i'm not being critical but in practice no one can really live the way that peter advocates it's an ideal he aspires to i don't think we need to have the unrealistic ideal in order to say in virtue of being part of an interconnected world where you know, we can no longer pretend that our actions only affect our neighbors and the people in our street, we have much, much greater responsibility towards you know, the people in the supply chains, people in the developing world than, than we think we have. But to say we have exactly the same responsibility as to everyone, I think that undermines the, the special nature of the relationships we have with certain people, family, friends, community, and yeah. so forth.
2: Um, Peter, it's not my job to look after your feelings, but I'm just wondering after that uh, whether you're feeling more condemned or praised and whether you feel like you've been characterized more as a man of principle or not.
3: Uh, look, I mean, what Julian said is quite right. You know, I don't live uh, at that absolute limit of what I could give away. Um, and uh, I think Julian is also right that human nature, to a significant degree, goes against the ideal that i've been putting out there but what i'm trying to do is to encourage people to do more Um, and to that extent despite you're trying to get a disagreement between me and julian it's not really that clear cut because um you know i'm trying to push people in this direction and i um am certainly prepared to say that if julian is saying we should do more then we're allied on on that issue the question is really just uh what's the best way to get people to try and push against those natural impulses that we have to a certain degree, but I don't expect and I wouldn't myself, um, you know, assume people can be completely impartial between their spouses, their parents, their children um, and and distant strangers.
2: Okay, Um, Sophie, in a second, we'll move on to the next question, but I'd love you to respond to this again. I'll I'll try and up the ante a, a little bit here, but, you know, Julian's basically saying we should have a rank order of people we should help. That who would be on your top of your list <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> right well um yeah it's an it's an interesting I, I actually I do have a sort of quite serious point about this because and it might be in slight um differentiation because whilst obviously um, you have to kind of work in the situation you're in but and therefore, if what you can do is give money to certain charities, and you know that is how you're going to register a general, vague, broad solidarity with the world, sort of thing, that's good. But where does that come from? I wonder if it comes from up here. You know, you're, that that's a sort of you know you are you doing it sort of taking a reasoned approach to this. I think it is a generally good thing to be on the the side of humanity. I'm interested in um, Julian's elderly parents, that emotional entanglement really that sort of kind of drops away some of the language about, you know, moral decision making. It's not a moral decision. You have to do it. And that really you know, that sense of being I, I guess I'm curious and I'd be interested to know what um Peter and Julian think about, you know, where is this in that picture? Like how we are, are we able to really feel for that, this this poor hypothetical child that we're picking on, whose life is already hard enough, but who has become the subject of, of, our, of our conversation? Like how do we sort of restore that kind of emotional energy that makes it not even a question of, you know, sort of Ethical auditing, if you like, like, well, I can do this and I should do this, and but it's more practical for me to do this and that kind of neat balance sheet of choices. Um, Where does that kind of, uh, and this comes brings me back to the apathy issue, I suppose. It's like, what was going on with there? Why, why weren't all those young people in the mid fifties later on? Obviously, that changed, but why weren't they all getting furious about the bomb? Maybe they were. But maybe there was a sort of degree of which, you know, we are living in a world which makes it very easy to become emotionally paralyzed a lot of the time. There's only so much crap we can take thing after thing after thing after thing. And it's like that's actually to me an extremely dangerous situation to get into, because if morality and ethics becomes purely a matter of accounting, I I don't think that's a very I don't think that's a very promising future.
2: Okay, Um, thank you. I've got there are sort of two other key questions that we're going to try and focus in which are developments really of where we've already been um first of these is so would emphasizing the failure to act lead to a fairer society for all in other words we you know if we really called out inaction um which of the three of you would like to have a go at this first
3: um, no. well i'd like to say inaction, there you go. yes if, if i if oh, i, I peter go ahead uh, i think we we're going to have inaction i, I think it would lead to a fairer society yes because i think uh, it's the inaction that's you know there's this huge disparity we're all very aware of between uh, the low income countries and particularly those in extreme poverty in the low income countries um, and uh, as I say those who are middle class or above in affluent countries um, and yet we most people are doing very little so I think if we um, got rid of or, or lessened at least I kind of agree we can't get rid of it entirely but if we lessened this divide between action and inaction that would change. And, and Julian mentioned climate change, and that's that's a really good example, um, because in, well, in fact, maybe it's it's a case where we're not seeing our thing, what we're doing as actions, right? But but when we emit greenhouse gases, we are harming people, um, but we think totally differently of that. We don't have the you know, Sophie was talking about the emotional responses. If if you went to somebody in a distant country and and punched them in the face so that they you know were really badly hurt, um, everybody would say that was a horrendous thing to do. If you emit greenhouse gases, that might mean that they can no longer produce crops because there's a drought or their land is flooded or it's too hot to work at the harvest time, um, you know, that we don't attribute uh, responsibility for in, in the same way. Yeah, um,
2: it's interesting. It made me think, you know, we have crimes of neglect I'm talking about, you know, childcare and families earlier, but we don't have crimes of neglect, at least yet. Necessarily with regard to the climate, what what were you thinking?
1: No, I think this um, this, this concept of, sort of moral estrangement is a is a sort of um, really interesting one for me. And this notion of whether if we then started taking tougher stances on inaction, what what would happen to that? Would it would it exacerbate it or would it ameliorate it? And honestly, I mean, it is going to be a very contextual thing. So something like the climate change, yes, absolutely. You know that, that I, I don't think you could make sort of broad generalizations for that issue. Absolutely, but for other issues, my worry is who's doing the deciding about what actions are good and desirable, and how they, what they are, who should be taking them in to what degree, and who's deciding which inactions are punishable and by what means and how exactly. And I'm very, I'm very, very worried about unless this is and utterly kind of democratic in the fullest and strongest sense of that term conversation, then um, that is a kind of, that is an additional feature of an increasingly sort of punitive interventionist political s- state, which is already judging individuals very, very, very strongly, very harshly in a very um, in- invasive way.
2: Mm. Okay, what are you thinking?
1: Well, about
4: I mean, I, I'm, th- I'm thinking that again, I, I think the whole I- inaction action thing is actually it's a difficult concept, it, it, it depends on the framing. So it's interesting, you know, Peter was talking about climate change in action and then he said, well actually, we've got to see it as being mainly about action. We're pumping the gases out, etc." cetera. The very same thing can be framed as an action or an inaction. If I don't give food to my children, am I starving them? That sounds like an action. Or am I letting them starve, right? I mean, it's semantic, isn't it? I actually think if you emphasize inaction, I don't think that's going to get to people as much as if you rather draw attention to the consequences of their actions. And the other thing is, it's not so much inaction that's a problem as the refusal to kind of change the actions we have. So I think what people have to recognize is that we are constantly engaged in actions, every day in actions, where we invest our pensions, where we buy. Our food, Um, and it's not just about the consumer end as well. I think that's a big mistake to think the key to this is just make sure you spend your money in the right way. You know, the the things that we take to be political priorities and so forth. You know, a lot of the, the harms that are done in the world are because it is set up in a certain way where certain actions are taken to be the norm, they have the consequences, and they're not being challenged. So it's switching from one set of actions to another rather than sort of like saying, you're not doing enough, right? We're doing, we're, we're, the, the kind of things that Peter's concerned about are often the consequence of, of actual um, actions that have been done, historical actions, colonial actions, et cetera, et cetera. Not just, people aren't starving simply because no one's bothered to do anything. It's often because they have bothered to do something. They just bother to do the things which are highly extractive and highly harmful and highly unfair.
2: Mm. OK, that's very helpful, Junior. Thank you. So really getting at that. Distinction and, and sort of action can be turned on its head to inaction and vice versa. And maybe redescribing acts, if they are acts of inaction as as forms of action helps to identify them more clearly apart from anything else. Um, uh, Sophie Peter, do either of you want to come back on this question before I move us on to the third? No, inaction from both, thank you. Um, <laughs> The third question is a slightly more meta question, I guess, because it's about the debate, about this kind of debate we're having. As it's phrased, the the question is: Is the distinction between agency and inaction here to stay? You know, this—the debate we've been having—is that are the kind of terms set now? If you like, are we going to continue having this sort of debate, um, you know, uh, forever? And I guess I want to come to you first, Peter, if that's okay. Um, Maybe because of your uh role your position your experience you have a you have a good view of this but where do you see this debate per se going i mean these terms we're talking about action inaction negligent negligence intervening quite binary in a way i suppose uh, i i wanted to get a sense from you perhaps you could steer us give us give us a sense of where where this conversation is evolving at its best if you like where the most interesting debates, conversations are having around this and whether we need slightly different terms even in which to address it.
3: Yeah, so I think what we need to do is to take responsibility for the consequences of our decisions. And our decisions may be to act, and it may be not to act. Um, And it might be interesting to switch the, the subject slightly from the global poverty and climate change to decisions about ending life in a hospital in an intensive care unit where we also have this action inaction distinction but i think uh, going the wrong way in the sense that um you know you, you don't have uh, in the united kingdom as i understand it yet uh, voluntary assisted dying which um, a lot of other jurisdictions do um australia now has it canada some parts of the united states so doctors will say that they will withdraw treatment from somebody or a patient who is terminally ill, um, they may withdraw treatment, they may not give life support, they may not give even um, antibiotics if they say a a person suffering from dementia in an old age home, they may say, um, you know, uh, pneumonia is the old man's friend was a saying that doctors use. So they allow people to die through inaction and through deliberate decisions about inaction, not administering certain life support. But they won't Give the patient uh, a drug, even a competent patient, and say, look, you know, the, if the patient has said they want to die, um, here's something you can take. I'll give it to you. Uh, and they certainly won't give a lethal injection as they would in the Netherlands or, or Belgium, for example. So I think that's a case where, where again, we, we've got it wrong by saying you're not responsible for the decisions you take if you don't act. Um, but if your decision is, in fact, one not to do something. I think you are fully responsible but i actually think it's better in this case to act because you can bring about the kind of death that the patient wants if we're talking about a competent patient um uh, at the time they want they can be surrounded by their family they can take the drug that they know will end their life um, and that's their choice uh and that's why i this that's a case where i think we should think about action actually as being better than inaction because it's fulfilling the needs of the patient.
2: Um, thanks, Peter. I want to pick up on that. I mean, among the many words there, on the notion of responsibility, and actually wanted to check back with you, Sophie, on this. Assuming we are, you know, grown-ups and not, uh, you know, uh, impaired in, in any way, am I right in thinking you would broadly say we're kind of all responsible for everything we do?
1: Well, I think I think I put a few more extra layers of nuance in it the moment, but if I was being, you know, so if you asked, where's the future going on this debate? And I actually think, right, well, okay, let's follow this notion of responsibility. But you know, let's not, you know, sort of always turn the lens inward. Because remember, actually, the more we think about our responsibilities and what our choices are and what our actions are doing, we've also got to be thinking about the social context of those, right? So it might actually be just as much a tool of social critique as it is one of self-critique. And it also might shock you to know, you know, sort of actually how much power you do and more importantly, do not have to make some of the um, decisions. And I suppose I would be interested to see um, if people started to kind of, uh, on the one hand, you know, have those sort of uh, kind of frank, ethical self-reflections. But on the other hand, not not just take responsibility, but want responsibility um, and demand more responsibility. Um, for the way they're living, for how they're participating in this socioeconomic world that shapes you know, their lives. Yeah, so I would like to see this as a springboard, um, not just for reconnecting and re-caring about the world and the other people in it, but also for finally kind of confronting some of the kind of power structures that are just so absorbed into the way we live.
2: I like that notion of demanding responsibility. Demanding yeah, um, Julian, can I, I want to repose the sort of original question, but feel free also to come back on what we've heard. And I suppose, no, you have an unusual position in the world because you write for newspapers as well. You know, you're, uh, uh, you know, you're not just working in university; you're working beyond the university and so on. I guess I'm trying to find out from you too, from your perspective, where you think this debate, if it is a debate, is going. Are the terms changing? What do you see out there? Is it? I mean, I can hear your frustration with this tension between action and inaction, yeah, fine. But where do you see the kind of more interesting developments or ideas cropping up in this field?
4: Well, I think I there's think two, two things that have come up, which I think are important are to responsibility and, and agency. And I think responsibility is a very interesting one because it, what I do, and there's an asymmetry between what I do and I don't do. My, my actions are finite and I can be held responsible for all of them fully. There's an infinite number of things that I don't do. I can't I can't be fully responsible for all of them. I can't be responsible for the for the you know the life I didn't save there and the person I didn't visit ill there and the the sick sickness didn't cure there. there. There's an infinite number of things. So there is a kind of an asymmetry. So we do have to think about our responsibilities. but I think the challenge there is to recognize that whichever way you look at it, and this is where again, despite the disagreement, Peter and I are in lots of ways pushing in the same direction. I think you have to accept the fact that we are responsible for a lot more than we like to think we are because our fates are bound up in so many ways with other people. But then it relates to the idea of agency as well, because I think that in our society, we do tend to kind of always think about the most important way of agency being what you can do. The, you know, one of Peter's books I think is called The Good That, that You Can Do. Now, it, people need to have pointed out to them their personal responsibility. But a lot of the big problems that face the world cannot be solved and will never be solved by individuals doing the right thing. So in other words, like for myself, for example, the right thing, I try to make the right consumer choices, but I'm under no illusion that's gonna change the world. What will really change things will be the political decisions, which means that I don't have to make those consumer choices because the damaging ones aren't available to me. That's gonna really change the world. Well, I don't have to choose not to buy Uh, factory farmed meat, is where it's not available because it's inhumane and it has been forbidden. So I I think that, you know, um, in, in all this kind of debate, action, inaction, agency, responsibility, I think we have a tendency to focus it too much, too much on the individual. And I'm not saying the individual responsibility doesn't matter. But I think we have to recognise that this is a much more of a collective thing. And, you know, we shouldn't be too egotistical that, and agonise about what my individual choice is. We need, to, we need to sort of like collectively come to make some better decisions and accept the responsibility. For example, our national economy, you know, our, our, our country has responsibilities. Australia's got responsibilities around climate change. Um, uh, Peter's home country. We've got responsibilities around, uh, you know, uh, people we rely on to import our goods and so forth.
2: Very interesting. Thank you for that, Julian. And, and I think that probably is right. You know, one of the assumptions in the debate we've had, at least as it's been set up, has sort of has been around the idea we're talking about individual responsibility, perhaps, rather than, you know, groups. And the U is the U singular, rather than the U plural. But if we can just finish by, perhaps, uh, for each of our three speakers, Peter Singer, Julian Bugini. Um, and Sophie Scott-Brown by just showing our appreciation for them. Thank you. Well, that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, and thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
1: Let's jump into Pepper's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Pepper play sets. Peppa Pig. (laughs) Inspiring kid confidence.